morning. Uh, let's remain standing for the reading of God's word, please, as you are indeed doing now. This is God's word from the book of Exodus, the last five verses. Exodus 40, verses 34 through 38 will constitute the focus of our deliberation today. This is God's word. Then the, la- the cloud... Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout their journeys. This is God's word for God people who affirmed it by saying, would you be seated please? Let's pray together. O Lord and our God, we look to you now with dependence and hope and fervent expectation of the power of your presence among us today. May your spirit bring to us the full meaning of this text in the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Enrich the heart of your people, prepare them to hear and receive this word, mixing their hearing with faith, and enable this vile, sinful instrument to proclaim it correctly, Christologically, courageously, and compassionately. To the glory of your name and for the good of your people. May Christ be exalted. May his name be praised. And may your glory continue to rest upon and to dwell upon this place. This place that bears your holy name. Through Christ and by his spirit we pray. Amen. Today our text is the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord. If you were to ask any person, I would dare say, if you were to ask them, what is the focus, what is the central point, the, the most critical event in the whole of the Exodus, they will mention, they will respond to the effect that it was in God's monergistic, soul, sovereign, supernatural redeeming of his people from Egyptian captivity at the Sea of Reeds. And why not? Because this is what is taught in vacation Bible school. This is what is glorified and even glamorized among evangelicals. And to, you must admit, the story is very appealing, and it's easy to understand. God versus the enemy, and guess who loses? Well, I submit to you today that there's more to the story of Exodus than that. And that, in fact, the crossing of the Red Sea, God's redeeming of his people, was not the climax of that story. The climax of that story is, I've already told you, the climax of the sermon is the glory of the Lord in the midst of his people. The glory of the Lord in the midst of his people. 
What we're finding here today is that God redeems his people with a particular purpose in mind. He redeems us for his own glory, which must be manifest by his redeemed creatures in ways and in methods that he alone establishes. So let's study this text today, the glory of the Lord, and we'll find that there are two reaffirmations of the glory of the Lord. And we find it, the first one in verses 34 and 35, the glorious presence or his glorious presence in the midst of his people. The glorious, his glorious presence in the midst of his people. First of all, we are told that it is a realized presence. 34 and 35 are really the foundation for our sermon today. And they basically set the whole thing in motion. The cloud covered the tent of meeting. What cloud? It is the cloud of the glorious presence of God. It is the cloud that is the theophany of God. It's the cloud that is an external manifestation of the presence of God. The glory cloud, it is called sometimes. And this cloud covered the tent of meeting that is also called the tabernacle. The tent of meeting, the place where God said he would meet with his people, promised to meet with his covenant people. And also it is called the tabernacle, the place in which he dwells with them. So we have these critical synonyms here. The cloud and the glory of the Lord, and then the tent of meeting, along with the tabernacle of God, establishing God's basis for his presence with his people. Now, why are these important? Because God had promised his people back in twenty-five, chapter 25, In verses 8 and 9, he had promised them that if they were to build this tabernacle, well, he had commanded them to build the tabernacle. And in it, he told them, if you were to build this tabernacle or make me a tabernacle or a sanctuary, a holy place that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, So you shall make it. So the establishment of the tabernacle, the place where God is to dwell with his people, was not done by the intentions of man. It wasn't done by the insight of man. It wasn't done (coughs) by the method of man or the ways of man. These were all done according to the specific instructions of God. Man contributed only what God had told him and God had given him. And then in 29, Exodus 29, 45 and 46, we read there, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So here is God announcing, reaffirming, reminding his people what he, whom he is, first of all, and then what he has done for them, and now what he will continue to do for them. He will dwell in their midst. Throughout the scripture, we see the, the ubiquitous testimony of God having a, an insatiable passion To be with his covenant people. The Christian faith bears this salient characteristic that is so different from all the other faiths. We have a God that is a personal God. We have a God that is a person. Not a monad, not a slab of concrete, not a one thing. This God is a person eternally subsisting in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Man, the record is, was made by God and placed in a garden, which was really on top of a mountain, a holy mountain, 
in the primeval temple of the Lord in the book of Genesis. He had everything going for him. Above all, he had a perfect communion with God, but still was liable to fall, and so he did. And after the fall, God did not kick man out of the garden, Genesis 3, 23 and 24. He did not send them into an exile that, is, that was endless. No, he, by his own mercy, provided a way, a method by which he would reclaim this fallen creatures who had rebelled against him so arrogantly, so, so violently, and who had rejected him and his truth for the lie of a talking serpent. And that is the history of redemption. That is all of the Bible from Genesis 3.15 onward. And it comes to the climax with God being reunited with his people according to his own plan, according to his own pattern, according to his own purpose, according to his own power. And we see that coming to a climax here in the book of Exodus. So here's the cloud, and the cloud is covering the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord, all of these symbolizing the presence of the Lord God himself in the very tabernacle. It fulfills and satisfies God's promises, as we've just read. But they also fulfill the message, the first commandments that God gave to Moses. First commands that God gave to Moses. That, that resonating refrain, let my people go that they will serve me in the wilderness. Let my people go that they would worship me on this mountain. Let my people go that they would serve me. And in that, those were established in Exodus chapter 3, <clears throat> when Moses had his epic encounter at the burning bush with Yahweh. In chapter 3 and verse 12, the Lord says, But I will be with you. <coughs> Excuse me. This shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And so here is the Lord fulfilling his word. Here is the Lord God performing his word. It is no wonder then that when Solomon built the, built the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, we read in his words, of the dedication of the temple as he blesses the Lord in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 through 13. We read that the priests came out of the holy place. Listen to the Exodus language here. A cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So yes, this was a pattern. The Exodus stands as a paradigm for all of historical redemption. And Solomon is using the Exodus as a pattern in building the temple and we see it being fulfilled in Jesus Christ who is God in the flesh in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And this Jesus Christ, this God in the flesh, came and dwelt among his people for the sake of living a sinless life for them and then paying the penalty of death for them in order to redeem them from the waters of God's judgment, just like in the Exodus event. And so this scripture tells us now also that what we're finding here is a link. Because you see, the people of Israel had already had a glimpse of the glory cloud. 
They had seen the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. Exodus 13 tells us that that pillar of cloud by day settled on the camp and the pillar of fire by night sat on the camp. And it tells us in Exodus 14 that the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, they were instrumental representing God's presence and power among his people in, in redeeming his people, in putting darkness over the Egyptians and light over the Israelites so that the people will now cross over the sea. God made a distinction between Israel and his enemies. They saw the, the terror or they had an introduction to the terrifying presence of God in Exodus 19 on the mount when the Lord came and, and first introduced or reintroduced himself to them. There was the mount that was quaking. There was fire. There was smoke. There was thunder. There was darkness. There was light. There was a loud trumpet. But most of all, there was a terrifying voice as God spoke to them. And then lastly, they had an introduction to the glory of the Lord in the cloud when Moses asked the Lord to show him his glory and the Lord put him in the, the split in the rock and he passed by, but Moses only had a partial view. But now all of that has ended and now the fullness of God is now dwelling with his people. Now the fullness of God is now dwelling with his people. Jesus Christ, the fullness of God, the express image of God's character, the radiance, the refulgence of the divine glory dwells with his people forever and ever. And this will come to its consummation in the book of Revelation at the end of history in the eschatological glory when we see the glory of the triune God being present as God is with his people, taking care of them, wiping away the tears from their eyes and, and comforting them and consoling them as a tender shepherd. So this is a realized presence. Do you see that? It was a presence that was promised. But now it is being performed. It was a presence that God had told his people to wait for. So it was a presence that was awaited. But now it has been accomplished. It was a presence that was foretold. But now it's a presence that is fulfilled. This is indeed a realized presence. God dwells with his redeemed people. Are we going to see some problems and some comforts from that in a few minutes? But secondly, we see that this is not only a realized presence, but this is the remaining presence. It tells us there, the cloud, verse 35, the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Verse 35. So what are we finding here? The Lord, the glory of the Lord settled on the tabernacle. This, this is the verb from the noun from which we get tabernacle or dwelling. The Hebrew word is shakan. And so here is God tabernacle tabernacling on or in the tabernacle. Immediately, this brings up ideas and notions of John 1 verse 14. The word became flesh and tabernacled with us. So we're seeing a shift now. We're seeing a shift in the locus of the divine theophany from Mount Sinai to the tabernacle. From Mount Sinai to the tabernacle, from the patriarchs, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is now also the God of the Israelites dwelling in them. What does that tell us? It tells us about the continuity of the scripture. It tells us that this same God was the very God that, that was related to, that was pivotal, pivotal in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It tells us that we today also serve the same God that the history 
of biblical religion is one. Because there is one God that has written the script. There is one story. There is one God. There is one Savior. There is one way of salvation. And that is crystallized in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and tabernacled (coughs) among us. This is a remaining presence. It remains until today. Because here is how. Yes, the Lord God comes and dwells with us in Jesus Christ. But we also have the Spirit of God dwelling with us. So Romans 8, 9 tells us, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God, notice, dwells in you. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those that were under the law, so that what? So that we might receive the adoptions of sons. And because we're sons of God, because we now have this, this, this irreversible filial relationship with God based on the completed work of Jesus Christ, we are his sons, and God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And then lastly, First Peter 4 tells us there, as he deals in this topic of the stewardship of God's grace, we see that it's good for us to suffer, it's profitable to suffer, For the name of Christ. And if you do that. Then you are blessed. Because. Note these words. The spirit of glory. All of this is Exodus language. Brothers and sisters. The spirit of glory. And of God. Could be translated. Even the spirit of God. Rests upon you. Do you see the continuity of the scripture? Do you see the coherence of the scripture? Do you see the link? the, The essential organic link from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And of this, the book of Exodus plays a very crucial and a very vital part. So it's a realized presence. And it's a remaining presence. And then for the last part of the first section of the sermon, it is a restricting presence. There, yes... God has promised his people to dwell with them. He has redeemed them supernaturally, majestically. And he did this in an, in an open place, in a public demonstration of his glory and power and so on. And now he's dwelling with them. Why doesn't the Bible end right now? I mean, he's fulfilled his word, hasn't he? Well, let me tell you why. I like jazz. I love jazz. I've been listening to jazz and studying jazz for more than 55 years. And so, yeah, I'm pretty much familiar with it. But I I think that scripture and the flow of scripture and the organization of scripture comports very, very soundly with the form, the format, and the expression of jazz. Because just like jazz, what we find in the scripture is that it begins with a major melody. The melody is sounded at the beginning, and most jazz works, just about all of them, and that sets the tone for the rest of the work. But then that melody continues and develops and evolves, and then some new dynamics are thrown in, are thrown into the mix, and then in jazz there's something called improvisation, but God doesn't improvise. That's the discontinuity here. Because he has set out everything according to his eternal decree. But nevertheless, continuing with the metaphor, we find that, that jazz has these, these turns, these twists. They are at many times um, polyphonic rhythms. There is a shift in the meter, shift in the rhythm. And then some instruments are going to reach, a, reach an ascendance in volume and pitch and tone more than others. 
And then it, it seems like they would be straying away from the melody. And it would even sound chaotic. But I can assure you, if there is any chaos in the scripture, it's because of our fallen minds, not because the Lord made a mistake. And then it would wander and come back. But throughout all of this seeming wandering, there are some heavy, audible accentuations that are being made. Bingo, like the Passover. How about that? Bingo, like the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the earth. The blood that was spilled or placed on the doorposts and on the lentils. Um, the sacrificial system that was established, the Babylonian, these Assyrian and Babylonian exiles, all of these were heavy accentuations, just like in jazz, that signaled us to the greater points of reference to which we need to pay keen attention. And where would you find that great point in jazz, equivalent to in jazz, in the book of the, in the whole of biblical redemption, in the whole of redemptive history, in the incarnation and in the atoning sacrifice of Christ. That is where the major punctuation would lie. And then after it moves and the, the music moves and it comes to this pitch, then comes the denouement as they now, it starts now to come back and to tone down and to move to its conclusion. But even in that process, it's not a smooth, straight line. There are different tunes and rhythms and pitches and so on all over again. But there is one melody. And there is this great harmony that tends to bring it all together. And in our case, it is the exodus of Jesus his death on the cross and his burial and resurrection for us. And so we have this restricting presence. It seems like the thing would have been done by now and it would have been over. But no, there's still more to come. Many twists and turns in this great exciting drama of redemption. And one of those daunting dilemmas that we find is that now that the cloud has been settled is that there was this restriction. What is the restriction? Even Moses, the mediator of the old covenant, was forbidden. Well, why was he forbidden? Well, if you remember in the old tabernacle, it specifies God's way or God's approach to worshiping him. Secondly, we see that even though God dwelt among his people, they were not free to worship him and approach him in any way that they designed. He established the way they would do it. Then here's the other problem. We have a holy God who is now dwelling among sinners. And you can feel the tension there. The gravitas of God, the, the gravity, the, the expansive, pure, powerful holiness of this God that is dwelling among sinners. Yes, we understand that God is imminent. He is with them. He is God with us. But at the same time, his, he is transcendent. He is other than us, especially regarding his purity. But so his imminence does not ever compromise his transcendence. He will always be holy. As a matter of fact, the epithet holy, the attribute holy, is the only one that is mentioned three times three, in a threefold reference in throughout the whole of Scripture. Holy, 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 said the burning ones, the seraphim as they flew in and ministered to God in his presence. This is what Isaiah saw. So here's this tension. Man is still holy. God is still holy. And man is not holy. And there is a problem. How is man going to approach God? Well, it's not until we flip the pages and come to the book of Leviticus 
there we see the entire sacrificial cultus being established there by God so that people now can go into his presence, into his presence through or by way of the offering of his sacrifice. Well, particularly a blood sacrifice. So yes, there were all these restrictions. Remember now there was a tabernacle? And then in the tabernacle, as you come through the eastern gate, the first thing that you saw was the altar that you had to, on which you had to offer a sacrifice to remind you that you are now stepping into a holy territory. It's not only taking off your shoes, it's now offering a sacrifice because what you're saying is that I'm identifying, I have a union with that animal that I'm sacrificing here, sacrificing. It should have been me that has been placed on that altar. So that's the first restriction. And then when you get further on, there was a basin for which, in which you, the priests were required to wash their bodies before they entered through a veil into the holy place, and only the priests can go there. And after that, there was another veil, another curtain, that establishes or led into the most holy place, and only the high priest can go into that once per year. So there were many restrictions in this tabernacle. God is a God that is near but God is a God that is afar. God is accessible, but God is still inaccessible. This is the Old Testament equivalent to the New Testament dynamic of the already and the not yet. Do you see that? So yes, they couldn't just go into the very presence of God, but guess what? When Jesus Christ came, that final curtain was torn from top to bottom and he became our access he is the one that leads us into the very presence of God the righteous for the unrighteous to lead us back to God Peter says Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18 that in this Jesus Christ all men without distinction have access in one spirit to the Father. Chapter 3 and verse 12 tell us, tells us that in this Jesus we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So yes, it was restrictive, but yes, Jesus Christ has removed all of those restrictions and he is the one through the veil of whose flesh through which we go and enter into the very presence of God. And if I may indulge you a little bit more, the writer to the Hebrews tells us clearly in chapter 9. He tells us in this wise, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things, but into heaven himself itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And he didn't do this to offer, as the high priest did, blood of a sacrifice for the sins, his sins, because he didn't have any. Or else he would have had to repeat these things and to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the earth. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ according to the book of Exodus. That's what we're studying today, my brothers and sisters. So this lamb is the lamb, Jesus Christ, that takes away the sin of the world. He is our paschal lamb. He is the one that brings us back to God dwelling in our midst has major, severe consequences. We cannot live as we like. As a matter of fact, the very presence of God among his people was indeed to make a distinction between them and the rest of the nations who had thousands of God, but he was the only one God who was not far away but who was near, nigh to his people. 
So here we have his glorious presence in their midst. And then in 36 through 38, we see the second reaffirmation. The second reaffirmation, his guiding presence in their movement. We need to remember, we need to remember that the Lord God had saved them, had had brought them unto himself, just like Jesus says, come unto me, all ye that labor, and I will give you rest. God says in Exodus 19, verse 4, you saw what I did to to the Egyptians. Oh, I brought you on eagles' wings unto Myself. So our salvation is personal. A personal God saves us and brings us to himself to live with him in a permanent relationship. And so what we find in 37, 36 and 37 is that this is a very dynamic, a dynamic guidance. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the, over the, the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. Literally, it means means in the going up of the cloud of the top of, off the top of the tabernacle, the people or the sons of Israel journeyed in all their journeys. What is the text teaching us? It is teaching us that there is a dynamic presence, that God's presence among his people even today in the form of his Holy Spirit, indwelling Holy Spirit. He is moving us. He is taking us from, a, from where we are to another place, to our ultimate place. That is to be with him forever and ever in heaven. And so these people were a people on the move. And what we find in 36 and 37 is simply this. Number one, are these truths? Number one, the people of Israel had a rhythm of life. They walked when God walked. They walked when the Lord God walked, where he walked. Number two, they stopped when he stopped. He regulated this rhythm of life. And so what we're finding is that they had a clear sense of the leading, guiding presence of God. So far, so good. Where he leads me, I will follow. We sing that song even though we don't do it. And so here, is the, here are the people of Israel establishing their lives in a rhythm, regulated rhythm of God. He would move and they would move and he would stop and they would stop. It tells us also that It reminds us also that they were pilgrims. They were going somewhere. The Lord God was leading them to a particular place, a special place, a specific place that that he had told them. Thirdly, or fourthly, I'm losing count, he tells them that it was throughout their journeys. This word for journeys means that they were always on the move. They were setting out. They set up from Sinai. They set up from Rephidim and so on. And then 40 years after this event, Joshua chapter 3 verse 14 tells us that they set out and they crossed the, the, um, the Jordan River to enter into the promised land. So these were pilgrims. And don't forget that this is not it for us. I know that, you know, you're living off your 401k, you're retired, you've got a nice cushy life and so on. Everything is working good. You know, like the lines are falling in pleasant places. (laughs) But this is not it. There is a better place to which the Lord God is leading us by his spirit. We are a people on the move. And we are being led by the Spirit of Christ. And why not? 
is Jesus Christ is our way out of Egypt. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is our bread, the bread of life in the wilderness. If any man eats of this bread, he'll never hunger. He'll never thirst again. It is by the blood of Jesus Christ that God's wrath is propitiated or turned away from us. He is the basin in whom our sins are washed away and we are sanctified. He is the way, the only way, the truth and the life. He is the light of the world if anyone follows after him. Here's that word. He shall not walk in darkness, but in the best, the greatest of light, even greater than all the light power of Georgia Power Electric Company. Jesus is the light of the world. And here's another motif. He's leading us. Dynamically, it's the shepherd motif. He leads his people out of Egyptian captivity. He leads them through the wilderness. And then when the end comes, he's going to lead us all into the very presence of God the Father. And he's going to tell the Father, here they are, all these folk from Brookwood Church. Not a single one of them is missing, just as you told me and just as you empowered me to do. So this is a dynamic guidance. It's a determined guidance. Well, what do you mean by determined? Because go back to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 8, and here's what you'll find. The Lord God telling Moses again at the burning bush, which is so significant for us. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of this land, of that land, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So this is exactly what he is doing now. He's among them. He's dwelling with them, among them, upon them, around them. And he's determined to fulfill the work that he started. Isn't this a proleptic equivalent, equivalent to Philippians 1.6? He that began a work in you will complete it. And will bring it to the day until the day of Christ. Yes, surely it is. So here is the Lord God telling his people, don't give up on me. Yes, things might seem very rough right now. Yes, there are some problems with the economy. Your health might be failing. You're going through many dangers, toils, and snares. You've got all multiple aspects of existential problems and mountain sorrows, but I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus is Emmanuel, and that means God with us. And that great covenant promise, I will be your God you will be my people, the Emmanuel principle that, that structures all of Scripture applies to God's people. And we need to stand on that word. And we need to claim that word for ourselves because it's God's word. It is God's truth. And it's God's truth that is designed for God's people. Yes, it's dynamic. It's determined. But then lastly, look at verse 38. <clears throat> it's discernible. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and by fire, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. There is no clandestine redemption in God. Paul tells us in Colossians 2 that he put the devil and his enemies, he defeated them on the cross, so he routed them, and he put them to an open shame the ignominious defeat of Israel of Egypt by 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 Yahweh 
was done so that all of the nations could see it. And as a matter of fact, even though they did not have television, they didn't have the internet, nobody could tweet and retweet back then, no email back then. The word got around. Watch out for these people because they're different. Their God is serious. He's put fear in the nation. So this is a discernible guidance in the sight of all the house of Israel Throughout all their journeys, the cloud was on top of the tabernacle. God is with them. He's leading them on his journey. And this cloud is staying with them all the time because of the faithfulness of God. We have confidence, just like the Israelites did, that this God is with us. We are encouraged and we are even comforted and consoled by the fact that the Lord God is with us throughout our trials in Duluth. We, it doesn't matter what we're going through. He has promised to be with us. He might take us through. He might take us around. But whatever our situation is, he is with us. Something about goodness and mercy following me all the days of my life to be with the Lord forever. Something about that. It's a discernible guidance. And what we also see here is the pattern of the Lord God following his people, uh, leading his people, and they following. Remember the Levites would take the Ark of the Covenant, the most expensive, the most holy piece of furniture in all of Israel, and they would lead the people of Israel when they were on the journey. And then when they stopped and when they were encamped, the tabernacle containing the ark came and rested in the very center of the camp with three, three of the tribes equally placed on each side uh, of the camp. But when they got up to move again to continue on their journey, the Israelites led the march with the Ark of the Covenant before us. And it's so with us today with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the good shepherd who leads his sheep. Oh, he calls his sheep by name and they know him. They know his voice and they follow him. And he's leading us through these dangers, through this wilderness. Yes, we are in an exile. And we are awaiting the final exodus. There have been several exoduses in the past. There was the exodus of which we are now reading in the book of Exodus. And then there was the exodus from Babylonian captivity. There was the exodus of Jesus Christ because when he had his transfiguration on the mount, when his glory was seen, guess what happened? He was speaking with the, with the servant sent from God from heaven to him. And they were speaking concerning about his departure. His departure was his death, which was in the Greek word for his exodus. So that's a third exodus. But we are awaiting the fourth one. And the fourth one is when Jesus Christ comes again and he is going to call all of his people. He's going to summon us. He is going to call us and gather us up from the four corners of the world and bring us into the very presence of God. No restrictions anymore apply. There'll be no more sin and therefore there will be no more restrictions. Right now, therefore, we are like the people of Israel, according to the book of Hebrews. We're looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. you know why? Because right here in America, there is no lasting city, no matter who is in power. But Christ is leading us. He is going to complete and consummate the very, very plan of the Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what we'll find when we go to heaven? We'll find the greatest paradox. We will experience the greatest paradox of God's self-revelation. 
And what is the greatest paradox of God's self-revelation? Well, I saw this holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more mourning, no crying. Yes, there are going to be several things that are absent from heaven. And they're all associated with sin. There's going to be no more pain. The former things have passed away. And then he looks again. And guess what he sees? I saw no temple. Do you see this? The greatest paradox of God's self-revelation is that the temple or the tabernacle that represented him are going to disappear. Why? Because the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You see that? That's the ultimate paradox of God's self-revelation. Yes, Brookwood Church is great. It's fancy, it's nice, beautiful stained glass windows. But this is not it. We're going forward. This is only a type, a typological characteristic of heaven in very, very minuscule form and format. But we look forward to that time when we will go into the very presence of God to behold the beatific vision. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. And when we do, we will realize we don't need a temple. We don't need a tabernacle. We don't even need the sun or the moon or the lights. No, for the Lamb is the light and the Lord is the light. And there shall we be with the Lord forever and ever. I'm going to ask you a question. Is heaven on your bucket list? Is this what you are consumed with? Is this a matter of of consuming delight and determination for you? Or does it really matter? You're doing the best to get there. You know, if I get there, maybe, maybe not. Whatever the Lord wants. Stop all that piousness. No, 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 no. God has given us. If you are in Christ... Christ will lead you to him. And there shall we be with the Lord forever and ever and ever and ever. Thank you and we bless you, O Lord, for your word. Please use it to encourage your people for the glory of your name by Christ and your spirit. Amen. Amen.